I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles. Let's go to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. As you flip there, I've got to do something a little unusual, a little different in our introduction this morning. As you look at this passage in your Bible, you will see that there is more than likely a footnote. There's a footnote after, let the manner of your life be. Let your manner of life be, you will see a footnote. Why is that footnote there? That footnote is very important. You see those words, let your manner of life be. Everyone over here, thank you. Let your manner of life be is one verb in the Greek. One verb in the Greek. That one verb gets translated by six words. What do we learn from that? What do we need to know from that? Why do we need a footnote? That Greek verb is the Greek verb that means behave as a citizen. Behave as a citizen. It's from the Greek word polis, which is the word for a city. Why does this matter? Why are we swimming in deep waters? Why should I care? Why are we having this seminary lesson this morning? We're having it because as you go through the slides, you will see that let your manner of life be can also be translated only behave as a citizen. Behave as a citizen of heaven. Behave as a citizen of heaven. Verse 27 can read this way. Only let your life, next slide, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our primary citizenship is in heaven. This is a truth we will wrestle with today, we will grapple with today. We are not Hoosiers. We are not Americans who happen to be Christians. No, we are Christians who have been placed by God in America, in the state of Indiana, in the Northwest Indiana region to form a little colony of heaven. And as our citizenship is there, as we go out into this world, and as we reflect the kingdom values, the kingdom truths, our king himself, we act as a colony, as a gospel outpost that proclaims who Jesus Christ is. We need to take this concept of citizenship and see that everything that Paul is doing in our text points back to this truth. How do I live as a citizen of heaven worthy of the gospel. Everything we're doing gets back to that. But hear this in the text. We see this in the text. In fact, let me read the text for you. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible, and inspired word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have." Brothers and sisters, let's try this. I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord. You say thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. And it is written in love and given to us for 
our good. As we look at this concept of how to live worthy of the gospel, how to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel, here's the four things we're going to tease out. Here's the four ways we live in this text as citizens of heaven. The first is this. We live for our God with tenacity. We live for our God with tenacity. The second thing that we learn is this. We live for each other with harmony. We live for each other with harmony. The third thing we're going to see in the text is this. We live towards our opponents with courage. And then the fourth and final thing we will see is this. We live towards our trials with grace. We need tenacity. We need harmony. We need courage. And we need grace to face hard times. Let's break this apart. Let's delve in. Let's get into it. Let's go to our first mark of citizenship. Let's look at tenacity. Go with me to verse 27. As citizens of God, we live for him with tenacity. Verse 27. Verse 27, what's Paul doing there? What's Paul doing there? He's saying, I want you to live worthy of the gospel. You see that. I want you to live as a citizen. We've already covered that. But what Paul says next is this. It doesn't matter if I'm there. I can be present. I can be not present. What I want to hear about you is that you're living worthy of the gospel, that you are living out your kingdom, your heavenly citizenship. And here's the first way. Here's the first way I want to see you living as a kingdom, as a kingdom-minded gospel citizen. I want you to live with a tenacious spirit, a tenacious spirit. What does tenacity mean? It's not a word we use very much anymore. What does tenacity mean? It means determination. It means grit. It means perseverance. It's so fitting of the people in this region. I detect as I've lived here as much, as much just raw willpower, grit, desire to grind, willingness to grind, to work hard as anywhere I've lived in this country. It's a compliment. It's a wonderful thing. Tenacity is something that we see in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Just three or four weeks ago, we went over the verse, he who began a good work in you will tenaciously do what? Bring it to completion, completion. Our Savior shows tenacity in saving us, in working on us, in not giving up on us, and making sure we arrive safely home. Our Savior has been tenacious in his salvation towards us. We respond in gratitude by living out his tenacity. That's one way we live worthy of the gospel. Now, how do I see that in the text? How do we get that from the text? Well, look at these words here. Look at these words. We are to stand firm. We're to be resolute. We're to be of a, of a fixed purpose, a fixed mind. We're to strive. What's striving? It's laboring to overcome. It's laboring in the face of great obstacle. It's laboring to overcome in the face of great danger. We strive. And how do we strive? How do we stand? Not being frightened in anything. Oh, friends, that is a snapshot of tenacity that requires perseverance, that requires determination. Who we are in Jesus as we put all these things together, we see that we are a people who do not give up. We are a people who do not quit. We are a people who are built to last when the going gets tough. We need tenacity. That's who Jesus is in the gospel. That's who we are in the gospel. But we've got to unpack that. It's not enough to just say, be tenacious right? 
In fact, Paul even gives us some cues. He teases out. He gives us some contouring of what it means to be tenacious. He gives us two ways that we are to be tenacious. Let's look at standing firm. That's the first way we are to live tenaciously. As we stand firm, what is Paul saying? What is Paul saying? He's saying we have to have a tenacious gospel defense. We have to have a tenacious gospel defense. Standing firm, that's military language. That would bring up military imagery. It would bring up soldiers standing in a row, standing firm, not giving up, right? Hold the line. That's what we say. That's what we hear in the movies. We have to have a tenacious gospel defense. The Philippians did then. The Philippians did then. They needed to stand firm. We need to stand firm today. How do we stand firm? What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, the Philippians, the Philippians needed to stand firm. There was all kinds of immorality in Philippi lurking around every corner. They needed to stand firm as citizens reflecting kingdom values. There was false teaching in their church. There were people saying, you're not a Christian unless you're circumcised. They would say, Ava needs to be, wait, she can't. She shouldn't be baptized. What are you doing with the water? There was a false teaching. They needed to hold fast to kingdom values, but they needed to hold fast to kingdom truth. There was external persecution. People were losing their jobs, possibly their lives, being imprisoned. They needed to stand firm in their allegiance to Jesus. It could be doctrine. It could be morality. It could be just the person of Jesus himself. Whatever the case, we stand firm with a tenacious gospel defense. Living a life of gospel defense will require tenacity. Sin can still be tempting. We all have weaknesses that need to be shored up. Satan will try to isolate us and lure us away. He's a master at that, and we have to stand firm. He will corrupt truth. He will tell you things like, listen to your heart, look inside, listen to your feelings. He'll get you to use your experiences to interpret the Bible rather than the Bible interpreting your experiences. We have to stand firm. We stand firm for Jesus' truth. We hold the line on his kingdom values, and we do not give up in our allegiance to him when the going gets tough. To be worthy of the gospel, we must be citizens who have a tenacious gospel defense. That's one. What's two? What's two? Look at the word strive. Look at that word strive. We strive. What is that? That's more military imagery. It's more military imagery. It's soldiers battling uphill, one step at a time, taking ground. It is a military analogy of taking ground, of advancing forward. And so what we learn from striving is this. We must have a tenacious gospel offense. The Christian life is not just about defense and keeping our noses clean, keeping our doctrine straight. We are not living in full holiness if our lives are not marked by a tenacious gospel offense. Paul calls us to it. Jesus calls us to it in the great commandment. Living a life of gospel offense requires tenacity. It requires tenacity We go on the offensive, we stay on the offensive, and we remain committed to the offensive until Jesus Christ has enabled us by his spirit to take that objective. And then what do we do? We do what I did in the army. You go on to your next objective. You keep moving forward. But how do we do this? As I've talked to you, 
as I've gotten to know you, I sense that we need help here. We want to do this, but we don't know how. This one gets harder, right? Well, there's two ways. There's two ways I think we can honor this text and live as citizens with a worthy, tenacious gospel offense. The first is this. I see y'all grinning. I say worthy the way I say it. This is how you will say worthy in heaven. Just get used to it, all right? All right. How do we live with a worthy gospel offense? Number one, we do it as individuals. We do it as individuals. We are tenacious in our individual outreach. Evangelism takes time. More often than not, it takes time. Sometimes month, sometimes years, sometimes decades, but we do not give up. Just last Saturday, I took one of my neighbors to a gun range. We went to shoot point blank, had a great time. I'm teaching him how to get better. I'm not the best. I'm not the best. Paul Bolt can tell you I'm not the best, but he, I'm getting better. He's getting better. We had a great time. And then we went out to lunch. We went out to lunch afterward over to Sandwich City, one of the best sandwich shops in all of Crown Point, because he wanted to ask me questions about the Bible and about Jesus. He asked me some pretty hard questions. He asked me questions like this. If the Bible is God's perfect word, why did he entrust it to fallible, imperfect men? That is an honest question. That's a good question. That takes a little bit of time. He also asked me other questions. Why can't I just follow Jesus' teachings? Why do I have to accept him as Lord, as Savior? Why is he the only way to heaven? Why do I have to believe that he is God? I don't understand why I can't just follow his teachings and call it good. That one's going to take a little bit of time. Even if I give him a satisfactory answer, right? He's got to percolate on that. He's got to think on that. And then the Holy Spirit has to take that penny in his brain and drop it like a gumball machine down into his heart so it can spread out, right? That's going to take some time. I know my friend, and he's told me, you can say whatever you want to about this conversation to anyone. He's a former Jehovah's Witness. He was raised in a Jehovah's Witness background. He was raised with arguments saying that Jesus was not God. This is going to take some time. It's going to require tenacity. It's going to require patience. It was that way for Paul. It's that way for me, and it will be that way for you as well. So don't give up. Live worthy of the gospel as an individual with a tenacious gospel offense. But what's the second way? If one way is, this is how we do it as individuals, I think it's more honoring of the text actually to say, how do we do this as a church? Paul's addressing the community, the body, us as a family. How do we do that? How do we do that? We do it in this way. First, don't forget that the church at Philippi is a lot like us. It's a church plant. It was birthed in turmoil the way we were birthed during covid and there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of lessons. Paul is calling a church plant to strive together with this tenacious offense. And so we learn some lessons. We learn lessons like this. We can't just settle for building worship on Sundays. We can't just aim a building at that. We can't just have ministries that happen to sit there. I mean, Sunday's the main event. Don't get me wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It is no less than 51% of what we do. But there's other things we have to build. And that takes time. That takes hard work. It takes getting things off the ground. It takes the persistence of growing, of learning, of inviting, of striving, having it at the forefront of our mind. How can I help get a non-Christian to worship at grace? We have to keep building our community groups, our Bible studies, where non-Christians can feel safe asking those questions 
that they would normally not feel safe opening up about. We have to keep building our missions team. In fact, let me just say that. If you're a member of Grace, you're on the missions team. There you go. But we have to keep building the team that finds those areas for us to serve, for us to go out and rub shoulders with the non-Christians, rub shoulders with people who are in trouble so we can provide mercy, and then over time, find ways to tell them about Jesus. This is how we do this as individuals. This is how we do this as a team together. Brothers and sisters, we need a youth pastor and we need a building. Let me just say it. All right, we need a youth pastor, we need a building. But you know what we need more than a youth pastor or a building? We need a tenacious spirit where we stand firm and we strive. We strive to advance the gospel. Does that sound like hard work? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. But guess what? There is so much joy in that work. The hardest things we do in life are the things we treasure the most. We make fun of participation trophies. Why? Because you didn't have to earn it. You didn't have to put any work in. You just had to show up. What are the things we value most in life? Those hard things we had to grow in and overcome. That's what we treasure. There is joy in that. As citizens of heaven, we need to live for our God with tenacity. What else do we need? We need, excuse me, we need harmony. We need harmony. Let's look at that now. We live for our God with tenacity. We live for each other in harmony. Look at verse 27 again. There's another way we live worthy of the gospel. As Jesus' citizens, it's clear in this text, we, we stand firm in one spirit. Hear, these, hear the oneness. Hear the unity. One spirit. One mind. Side by side. Paul is clear as day addressing the Philippian unity. He's addressing their unity. He's addressing their harmony. They need tenacity, but they need to be united in a harmonious way as they go living out that tenacity. Hallmark should be, excuse me, harmony should be a hallmark letting you know you've crossed a boundary into God's kingdom. But we've got to unpack that. We've got to unpack that. I can't say everything that needs to be said in this text. Why? Because the next four verses in chapter two are really gonna unpack that. We'll cover that in two weeks after Thanksgiving. But let me say this, let me say this. When we say harmony, when Paul says harmony, when when he invokes this oneness, this side-by-side imagery, we're not talking about puppy dog tails, rainbows, kumbaya, everybody has good feelings harmony. He is talking about a harmony of purpose a unity of purpose. That's what one-minded, that's what side by side, they have an intent, they have a purpose, right? Like what are we, what are we one-spirited about, right? Like it's not a nebulous, we're one-spirited. No, we are standing firm in one spirit. There's a purpose to the one spirit. There's a purpose to the one-mindedness. And what is that purpose? To strive, to strive. We need to be united with all parts of the body, pushing towards the same goal. We need that kind of harmony. In fact, let me use an illustration. Paul is employing military language, and the Philippians, the Philippian colony was a colony of Roman veterans. That's why they lived in Philippi. The emperor set aside this land, 
and said, once you've done your 20 years of service, when you get out, here's your pension, a plot of land in Philippi. This is how they were living out their remaining days. They were veterans. When they heard Paul saying side by side, striving, standing firm, the image in their mind was this. Go next slide. It was a famous formation from the Roman army called the Testudo Formation. Everybody say Testudo. That's a fun one, right? It's the Latin word for tortoise, and you can kind of see why. As Roman soldiers overlapped their shields to the front and overhead, they became an impregnable fighting force. This is the imagery those veterans would have in mind, and they knew instinctively that this formation was incredibly strong. When Roman soldiers came upon a trench or a ditch at war, you know what they would do? They would go down into the ditch, they would form their testudo formation, and that formation, those shields interlocking was so strong, they drove chariots across, and they drove their cavalry horses across. It's an incredibly strong formation. It could withstand spears. It could withstand arrows. It could stand firm. And when they move forward together on the offense, now they were striving, moving forward together, locked shields. You can see what Paul is getting at as you know this formation. If one person breaks rank, what happens to the formation? It's vulnerable. It comes like a house of cards. If one person is not one-minded, not there, side by side. There's a weak link and the formation will not hold. That's who we are as Jesus' citizens. That's who we are as the church. We are a militant spiritual formation standing firm and striving together. We need harmony to make this happen. How? How do we build and how do we maintain this kind of harmony? You know, I got to talk to a couple this week, um, a little bit older than me, wiser than me, and they've become recently very excited about our community group ministry. I love spending time with them. I learned so much. And one of the things I took away from them, a nugget that I received from them is a nugget I want to share with you. How do we build this kind of harmony? They said this, we need regular, open, honest community. We need people that we can meet with on a regular basis and be transparent and open about life struggles with. Here at Grace, we call that a community group. We need a space where we can put our struggling out there. It builds trust. It promotes harmony. It promotes unity. Why Satan loves to get us alone, but when we're together, when we're locked shields, great things happen. Here's some lessons they've been learning they say they feel so much less alone when they hear that other people are struggling with what they're struggling with. They said they feel so much less alone when somebody says, I may not be struggling with that, but here's what I'm struggling with. And they feel like less of a fraud, less of a fake. Oh, friends, it's a relief to them. They feel more energy to take on their struggles when others call them to pray for them, take them out to breakfast and ask, how can I serve you? How can I help you? I heard what you shared. I care about that. I want to do something about that. What these people are seeing is if this is them finally able to talk about their weaknesses, their vulnerabilities, they see their brothers and sisters in Christ coming forward, putting a shield in front, forming the beginning of that spiritual military formation. And as that happens, what happens in the person who's receiving that warmth, receiving that love, and receiving that care? What happens in their hearts? As their hearts warm, isn't it natural to say, I want to take care of you? 
You've got a shield in front of me. I want to watch out for you. I want to bear your burdens. I want to know your joys. I want to pray for you. I want to know I can help you and serve you. I want to take my shield and I want to put it over you. And now we're interlocking. Now we're building the team. Now we're building the unit. As our hearts warm, we fuse into a spiritual military formation. Do you see that? That is an amazing thing. That is standing firm together as citizens worthy of the gospel. But let's take that to the next step. We've got a shield interlocked in a community group. We've got another shield overhead. What happens when they go out and serve at one of our veterans events? What happens when they go out and serve at Mommy's Haven? What happens if two or three ladies from a community group get trained on how to lead a Bible study, go to Mommy's Haven where these single moms need Jesus? Their children are gonna need a father. They're gonna to need to know they have a father in heaven, a big brother in Jesus. Why? Because they don't have a dad in the home. What happens when people in a community group lock shields and step and walk forward? What happens? Now we've got gospel offense. Now we can tenaciously walk forward, strengthened by the fact that we're together, we're not alone, and we can advance the gospel in a tenacious offense, living as citizens worthy of the gospel. Do you see? Do you see how care in a community group builds a defense that converts to offense. This is a wonderful, beautiful thing, and you feel the Holy Spirit working through it. It becomes addictive. It pushes worries and cares aside and puts them in their proper place. This is one way we can live together in harmony, standing firm, striving, but with one spirit, with one mind, side by side. Doesn't that sound like a life lived worthy of the gospel? Doesn't that sound like something Jesus would be proud of? Let's run after that. If you've never done that, that's okay, that's okay. There's patience, there's grace. There will be harmony as you learn how to embark upon this journey. How do we live? How do we live as citizens? We live with tenacity. We live with harmony. What's the third thing that we need? The third thing that we see in our text is this. We live towards our opponents with courage. We live towards our opponents with courage. Look at verse 28. It's there clear as a bell. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a hallmark of a gospel citizen. Courage, courage. We've talked about boldness for the last two weeks. This is the third week in a row. It's been mentioned, so let me hone in here. Let me hone in here. The Philippians needed courage. They were a minority in a hostile society. Did you know that when they went to public games, when they went to the, to the plays, to the festivals, to the, to the Philippian amphitheater, you almost began those things with some kind of devotion to the Roman emperor. It was much like us playing the national anthem. And what happens? What's the latest controversy in our country with the national anthem? We have people who kneel, right? When the Christians did not stand up or bow to honor the emperor, they were essentially kneeling during the national anthem. That made them ostracized. That raised eyebrows. It made people wonder if they were traitors or insurgents to Rome. Compounding that is when they didn't go to pagan temple worship. They did not ask for the blessing of the Roman gods. Other people were, went from like raised eyebrows to what are you doing? The gods are gonna be displeased. 
They're going to visit calamity upon us. We will know that God's wrath, because you're not worshiping, you're messing it up for the rest of us, and now it turns to anger. And then, as they live life in the public square differently, not going to the places of seedy immorality, their life, their changed life, stood as an open rebuke to the pagan culture around them. Oh, they did not win friends. They did not influence people. This carried the threat of open hostility, imprisonment, loss of business sales, and possibly even getting lynched by a mob. The Philippians needed courage. You need courage. I need courage. How do we need courage? We need courage today. We need courage when you're the only Christian at work. We need courage when you're in the minority on the job site. If you don't use their language, I could tell you about soldiers' language right now, but you would fire me. Oh, I could tell you some spicy jokes or witticisms, but you'd hang me. <laughs> you'd run me off with pitchforks, right? When you're the only one not engaging, when you're not laughing at their jokes, telling their jokes, when they come before you and are saying, hey, man, look what's on the screen, right? And you're like, whoa, hold up. No, hey, man, I don't want to see that. I've got a wife. I love her. By the way, she looks better, right? When you're that guy at work, People don't want to spend time around you. You run the risk of being ostracized. You're that guy or that girl. When people don't want to work with you, it makes it hard to get a raise. It makes it hard to get promoted. Brothers and sisters, we need courage. We need courage. We need courage as our society moves into a post-Christian age. Christian influence is on the wane. It is no secret that it's on a downward trend in our society. I mean, just 15 years ago, we talked about how our society had moved from a Christian society to neutral towards Christianity. 15 years later, what are we talking about? How we've gone from neutral to where it's becoming more and more hostile towards Christianity. We're not wanted in the public sphere. We're not wanted in the halls of academia and the universities. That's becoming increasingly clear. We need courage to navigate this world, to navigate this life. What if you're here and you're not a Christian? What if you're here and you're not a Christian? What if you're here and you're, you're somebody who doesn't like Jesus and, and you're like very clear on that? What if you're here and you claim Jesus, but you're living like an atheist? Maybe, maybe somewhere deep in your soul, you wanna be free of living for someone else's approval. Maybe, just maybe, you're tired of trying to white-knuckle your way through life, realizing you can't control the outcomes in life, but you don't have the courage yet to trust God to guide and lead your steps and make them straight. Those two things would require courage. Maybe, just maybe, if I can, if I can go there, this one's going to maybe bite a little bit. Maybe you see that there are things in this world that are wrong, but you're scared to speak out. Why? Because if you do your friends and society will cancel you. You need courage. Can I just say, if you're here and you're not a Christian, everybody needs courage. You need courage, and Jesus Christ offers you courage in spades. Own it. Come to him. Let today be the day that you come to Jesus and receive his courage. Oh, brothers and sisters, we need courage we have brothers and sisters in other countries that need courage as well. You see, Paul lived in a much more hostile age than being ostracized at work. 
Many of our brothers and sisters across the globe live in very hostile environments. Just three weeks ago, the G20 summit of the world's leading 20 countries was in the news. You know who made headlines? The Archbishop of Iraq. I didn't even know there was an Archbishop of Iraq, and I lived there for 15 months. I probably drove by his church as I crossed the Euphrates every day in a vehicle. His name is Bashar Warda. He gave a sober speech on terrorist activity, on the persecution of Christians of all stripes in the country of Iraq. He said, and I quote, after 1,900 years of having a Christian presence in Iraq, Christianity stands on the very edge of extinction there. 20 years ago, there were one and a half million Christians in a country of something like 21 million people. Today, there's less than 200,000. After sectarian violence, after ISIS, after local governments leaning and loosening up their restrictions on persecution, Christians in villages are left at the mercy of local militant warlords. There is no threat of legal action, military action, or police action. They're leaving Iraq in droves, or they're dying or being thrown in prison. Oh, friends, they need our prayers because they need courage. We need to pray for courage for us, for them. We need to pray for courage. Why? Because it is a hallmark of a citizen of heaven. We need tenacity. We need harmony. We need courage. What's the fourth and final distinctive that we need to be citizens of heaven? It's this. This is the hardest one. In the face of trials, we need grace. In the face of trials, we need grace. Look at verses 29 through 30. We have, to, we have to go through something right now that's going to be pretty shocking. Paul says something that, that kind of eases you in. He says, we've been granted faith. You can see that word granted. That word can be translated, we have been graced. We have been given graciously. That's no big surprise, no big deal. We're grateful for that. A little heartwarming, right? Thank you very much, Jesus. I have been graced with faith. We know that, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Everybody memorizes it in cadets or gems. I gotcha, I gotcha. But what does Paul say next? He says, you have been graced. To you has been granted. You have the gift of suffering. Do you see that? That is absolutely shocking. We will be called to suffer for Jesus Christ. And that is a gift from God. To face those trials, not if, but when they come, we need to face them with grace. We need to face them with grace. This is the final way you and I live as worthy citizens. We face our trials with grace. I gotta ask, you're probably asking, is Paul crazy? <laughs> Who wants that? Who thinks of suffering as a gift? I mean, like you're an A-plus Christian if you resign yourself to the fact that you will suffer and read a book or two, some Bible verses, right? That tends to be our mindset. We don't really ever get to this idea that persecution, that trials are a gift. They are a grace. But when we lean into that, oh, there is power. It creates a powerful witness. Is Paul crazy? No. This is a theme throughout the Bible. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 40 and 41. 
Look at how the apostles were beaten at the temple in Jerusalem, charged not to speak in the name of Jesus. And upon their release, what did they do in verse 41? They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. They rejoiced. Look at Peter reflecting back on this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Rejoice. Rejoice in so far as you are mocked on Facebook. Rejoice in so far as MSNBC, CNN, or whoever on Twitter mocks Christians. Rejoice. Be glad. His glory is being revealed in you and through other people. If you are insulted for the name of Christ in the workplace, around the Thanksgiving Day dinner table, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Jesus Christ is using that to work change in you, and he is using that to glorify himself through you. Is Paul crazy? No. We saw it then in the early church. Do we see it today? Do we see it today? Let me tell you the story of a man who lived in Iran. His name is Mehdi Dabaj, Mehdi Dabaj. He was imprisoned for converting from Islam to Christianity. He was sentenced to jail in 1984. He was released in 1994 and three days later found dead in a park. It was a common theme in Tehran, the capital of Iran at the time. Christians in prison released and then boom, they're dead within 72 hours. At his trial, here's what Mehdi Dabaj said. He said this, and I quote, Jesus Christ is our Savior, and he is the Son of God. Feel the force of these words. Feel the passion, the intensity, and the urgency. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles recorded in the gospel, and I have committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him, and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, 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 hear grace in the face of trial. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison. What? I am satisfied to be in prison. For what? The honor of his holy name. But I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus. Could we do that? Are we just playing at church? Being a good Dutch or English or Scottish person? Or is this real? Does this run deep? Is there something deeper than doing the do's and avoiding the don'ts? Can we suffer for the name and count it as grace? Let that be a sword that pierces our hearts as we ask that question. Oh, brothers and sisters, there's always been persecution. There always will be. It won't go away until Jesus comes back. We should expect it, especially if we live with courageous, harmonious tenacity. Our Savior suffered, and that is how he saved us. We would not know him fully if he did not take us through seasons of trial. We would not know his life fully if we were not persecuted the way he was. It could be something small like a dirty look when you mention the name of Jesus. It could be being ostracized socially or mocked. I know of a science professor at a sister church up in Chicago, just found out about this on Wednesday and we prayed for this man. He's a science professor who's about to lose his job for his views on creation. Pray for him, 
pray for him, but know that he is facing this trial with grace. He's taking his newfound time as he's on terminal leave, and he's going around and he's teaching Christian youth how to be equipped, how to face what they will encounter in college. He is facing his trial with grace. Oh, friends, as a result, this man knows he's Jesus better. He's okay. He's going to be fine. We pray for him, but man, we need to look at him and see how to face our trials with grace. What does it look like to face a trial with grace? What do we do? Like, Pastor John, I hear you. I get it. Do you have some practical handles for me? Well, we already saw, we already saw in 1 Peter 4, rejoice. That's one thing. Know that the Lord is at work in our life and he loves us enough, trusts in us enough, trusts in the power of the Spirit in us enough to do something and to use us. Number two, as we look at 1 Peter 3, 9, we see this. We do not return evil with evil. We do not return reviling with reviling. We seek to bless. We rejoice, we bless. What's the third thing we do? 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16 makes it clear. We always give the reason for the hope that is within us but we do it with gentleness and we do it with respect. Why? Because it puts our opponents to shame. Oh, friends, as we do these things, we will live out our trials with grace and we will live worthy of the gospel. I've told you the call of this passage, live worthy as a gospel citizen. I've told you Paul's call is to do it with tenacity, with harmony, with courage, and now with grace, with perseverance. But there's one final thing that we need as we close. We need the motivation to do this. That's hard, right? Like I feel the weight of this as I study this. I feel the weight of telling you to go do this, right? Like who wakes up in the morning? Hey, go suffer for Jesus, right? I can't wait to tell you that. We need the motivation to do it. We need, we need the want to, right? How do we get that? How do we get that? We get it by looking at heaven's ultimate citizen, the only citizen of heaven who ever earned his admittance. His name is Jesus. Let's rehearse his gospel. Jesus Christ came to this earth and lived with tenacity. He lived tenaciously on defense, never sinning, never giving in to temptation. He lived with a tenacious offense, telling people about who he is and what he's going to do for them, doing miracles to heal people, setting captives free. He is the one who came to this earth and lived in perfect harmony, following his father's plan, accomplishing his father's purposes. Jesus Christ lived with one spirit, one mind, side by side with his father, following him perfectly. This made him acceptable before God's throne, and now by faith you and I have those righteous deeds that he did that make us worthy citizens of heaven. And then Jesus Christ, he came to this earth in perfect courage, not only facing the Pharisees put down, the Sadducees' sarcasm, or Satan's temptations. He is the one who courageously stood in our place, absorbing God's wrath over our sin, and he did it with courage as he endured his trial on the cross with grace. He suffered even though he was innocent, not defending himself, more interested in defending you and me. And as a result, he accomplished the salvation that he now graciously gives to you and to me. And now by faith, we are in him and God pronounces us as worthy citizens of heaven. Go to verse 28 one final time. When we rest in this, when we trust in this, we know our future is secure. 
We know that as we live as citizens worthy of heaven, representing the great Savior, the great citizen of heaven, Jesus Christ, we learn that our life and their reaction to our life really is a sign of their destruction, and it really is a sign of our salvation, the salvation that we have from God, who has made us citizens in Jesus, citizens of heaven, citizens worthy of his gospel. How do we live in response to this gospel news? We live with tenacity. We live in harmony. We live with courage, and we face our trials with grace. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we come before you. We need you. Father, we love you. Father, you have given us so much. You have given us this wonderful citizenship. You have given us through faith in your son the blessings of being your children, the blessings of knowing that we're right with you, blessings of knowing we have a new start in your son. We stand not condemned, but we stand as citizens, and that can never be taken away. Oh God, help us to treasure this. Help us to lean into that and help it to fuel us as we go out and live for you this week. We love you, Father. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.